If you have your Bibles with you, and I just encourage you to bring them each week. Please turn to that little book of Philippians, the New Testament, one of Paul's prison epistles. And today we're just going to kind of jump on board and entitle today's message or lesson, Opening Statements. We're going to do some opening introductory statements to this book, probably next week as well. And then, Lord willing, we'll get into the verse-by-verse exposition. So let me read the first two verses of the first chapter just to get us into the, to the arena, as it were. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you'll see at the top of the outline, if you happen to have one, I am recommending, just recommending, that if you can read through the book of Philippians one time each week, there's 104 verses. So you mathematicians, if you divide that up, it's about 11, 12, 13 verses a day. Can you imagine what would happen to revolutionize our thinking and our study together if every week we would just read through that book? Read it slowly. I don't know about you, but I find that if I read it out loud... It helps me to focus on it and just looking at different things, maybe underlining and connecting ideas and thoughts and things like that. It might be very helpful. So I'm just recommending that. I think it'll be very helpful uh, for us. Well, Philippians is the epistle of joy. I think every commentator that I've read hit that theme very well. There's many other things, but joy seems to be all over the place. Now, what does the word joy mean? It's a word that has the idea of being cheerful. Um, I like this definition, calmly happy. You know, sometimes people get all happy and they just jump up and down and swing around and act like a bunch of banny roosters. But this is a calm joy. Nothing wrong with that excitement at times. But there's a deep-seated joy. And so the third idea behind this is that it is an inner gladness or delight. This joy is something that's deep-seated. Happiness, someone said, is based upon happenings. But joy is based upon a deep-seated confidence and contentment in God and His Word and His Spirit living in us, despite what the circumstances may be. And you know, I think this morning, if you know the Lord, that's really how you want to act, isn't it? I say, I want to. (laughs) I don't often do that. But that really is the cry of my heart that no matter how much things may be crumbling around me, the guy went to his friend and said, man, things are really bad. He said, hey, cheer up, things could get worse. So I cheered up and sure enough, things got worse. One guy said, if life's a bowl of cherries, how come I got all the pits? Okay, so there are times like that. That's, That's the normal Christian life. But in the midst of all of that, we can have a joy. And that's what this epistle really is talking about. It defines it, it gives to us the source and the fruit or the evidences of having joy. Now, you notice, secondly, I've said that joy is, first of all, important to and evidence of being a citizen of God's kingdom. Again, if you have your Bibles, and I like to to let the scriptures speak for themselves, if you go to Romans chapter 14 and verse 17, Paul reminds us, 
He says in Romans 14, 17, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit. So if someone is a citizen in God's kingdom, and by the way, everybody's a citizen of one or two kingdoms, the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of God, the kingdom of light, the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of heaven. And a major characteristic of that kingdom of God is joy. So when a person comes to know Christ, there's something that's replaced within. Psalm 40, one of my favorite psalms, the first three verses basically say this, God found me in the slime pit of sin, and he pulled me out of that by his grace and his power. And he put my feet on a solid rock, and he put a new song in my heart, even praise to the Lord. I don't know about you, but that's a scenario of joy. I don't know many people other than pigs who are happy in a slime pit. Christians look back at their life and say, oh my, look at the difference in my life. The songs I used to sing were songs of dearth and mourning. Now there's a song of praise. So being a Christian, there's a sense of joy that I never had before. True, lasting, eternal joy. But joy is also very important. Nehemiah 8.10 says, The joy of the Lord is my strength. That supernatural work of God. God the Holy Spirit. And though it cannot always be explained, I think rarely can be explained, that when God gives me the strength, usually it's associated with joy in Him and what He's doing in my life. So joy is very important to our Christian life. It's an evidence of being a Christian. If someone does not, doesn't bear the fruits or the evidences of having a joyful spirit on a regular basis, you've got to wonder what's wrong. Now, I don't think we should judge one another's Christian experience, although Jesus said we are fruit inspectors. Okay. If someone is never happy or joyful about anything, always criticizing, always complaining, always looking down, always condescending, me, after all these years, I just put a question mark and say, man, something wrong. Either this person's never been taken out of the slime pit with a new song and a, a, a life of joy, or they've gotten so far away from it, they need to get back to having that joy restored. So the question obviously comes up next, why do we study Philippians? Well, I was very interested and blessed to read uh, James Montgomery Boyce has a commentary on Philippians. I didn't know this. I was privileged to be in the 10th Presbyterian Church at the Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology the year that he passed away. And the last sermon that I heard him preach, and it was one of the last sermons that he preached, was John 17, a tremendous sermon on the, the high priestly prayer of Jesus. But when he went to 10th Pres, two away from Barnhouse, he says the first book he preached was Philippians. Uh, that was interesting to me. I'm thinking, I, I have high regard and respect for him. I've learned so much from him. I've been blessed by his ministry over the years. Of course, now he's in heaven experiencing joy to the max. But he said, that's what I did. I felt that coming to a new congregation, that one of the things we have to have is large doses of joy in God 
and sharing that one with another. And so I didn't, I didn't pick Philippians because of that, but I was just blessed to see that. I just, I just believe the Lord has led me to teach this small book. And I'll share with you perhaps more next week our goals in mind in preaching through this. But surely, I think I'm safe in saying that there is a universal hunger or pursuit or concern in people's hearts outside of Christ for something that satisfies joy, peace, and contentment. And they try to fill that with all kinds of things. All kinds of things. One person has called them functional saviors. That is, they try to do something to take care of that need in their heart. And that could be pleasure, drugs, amusement, power, politics, work, ouch, wealth, family, friends, ritual, or religion. I don't know who it is that actually said that there's a God-sized hole in the heart of every person and only God can fill that hole. Only God and His grace and what He gives can take care of that problem. But there is. The world over, there's that universal pursuit and desire for joy and peace and contentment. And I was thinking again this year, is the whole celebration of Christmas nothing but a testimony to say that people are looking for that? Whether it's lights or presents or music or parties or whatever, but the problem is, come December the 26th, it all crashes. It doesn't satisfy. But it is an evidence that, at least in the Western world, now I've been in India at Christmas time, and believe me, it ain't nothing like here. Okay? But they, they have other ways of doing it with their holidays and their festivals. People are looking for something. They want Peace. They want joy. They want something that's real and lasting no matter what happens to them. So where do you find it? Well, you and I know, I'm preaching to the choir here this morning, we know that it's found only in Christ Jesus. William Hendrickson's written a commentary on Philippians, and he says this. If one wants to know this real peace or joy or tranquility of heart and mind, he must turn to the Word of God and this epistle contains that expression quite often. Especially in Philippians 4, 7, where it says the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will literally build a wall around your heart. This little gem of four sparkling chapters pictures a man who's actually found it. He has unearthed life's most cherished treasure. He is, we might call, the happiest man in the world. Listen to him as we go through the epistle. You'll hear things like this. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. I have learned in whatever circumstance I find myself to be content. I know what it means to live in straightened circumstances. I know what it means to have plenty. In any and all circumstances I have learned, key word there is learned, the secret both to be filled and to be hungry, to have plenty and to be in want, I can do all things in him who infuses strength in me. I am more than amply supplied with what I need. And this man, he goes on to say, who has learned life's greatest secret was a prisoner in Rome. That adds a whole lot of weight. I was in high school during the 60s. Peace, man. And you know, all the love to... 
one of the one of the phrases down in Georgetown, particularly Washington D.C., was this: "Hey man, that was really heavy." Now, what do they mean by heavy? That was powerful. That was weighty. And when someone is sitting in prison and they are writing words like this, hey, I'm going to sit up and take notice. Paul perhaps would have been the first guy to say, been there, done that, bought the t-shirt. And for me, this is just me, but what I've discovered in my life, when someone has walked down that road and they have a lesson to teach me about what God's done in their life, I sit up and take notice. I listen to what they say because they've experienced that. Well, he did. In this epistle, we have revealed to us the secret of true joy. We have, moreover, says Hendrickson, the man, not secondhand, not thirdhand, but the man who learned that secret. And then, of course, we have the Jesus Christ who taught him that secret. So what we have before us is something that's powerful and very personal from a man who's sitting in prison. Now it's interesting, I'm, I'm not going to read these all to you, I'll just, if you're taking notes and you want them later, I'll give them to you, but many times in this epistle, I've counted so far 14, I might not have got all of them, but at least 14 times in this epistle, he uses the word joy or rejoicing. Now, your first time reading through this, maybe you want to take a, it's, it's not a sin to write in your Bible or underline I know some people think that's so. It's not so. It's, it's the Word of God, and I just mark mine up all the time. Take a, a color pen, red or green or something, and every time you see the word joy or rejoicing, just put a little underline. It'll be amazing how it'll just jump out at you. And I think, according to my count, there's possibly 14 times so far in 104 verses. That's significant to me. So it's all about joy. It's all about rejoicing. It's all about living in light of the truth of that, that statement. Now, this epistle, 104 verses, not only tells us how to discover joy, but it tells us how to revive it or recover it. I am convinced that the devil's greatest aim at the Christian he knows he cannot take away his salvation. There are good men and women who disagree with me. I'm like Charles Hadd Spurgeon who said, if it's not eternal life, I don't want it. Okay. If I can lose it, well, let's just say I do believe that God's salvation is forever. So he knows he can't take care of that. But what he can do is make me miserable all the way home to heaven. And he delights to do that. And there are a lot of people, perhaps some here this morning, I haven't got to know you well, so you can't blame me for picking on you. Maybe you're just surviving. I may have used this phrase yet. I'll use it again. My father used to speak about Christians who looked like they were born on the dark side of the moon and weaned on dill pickles. I've been in church all my life. I've been a pastor more than 40 years, and I've seen it, and I've experienced it too. Don't think that I'm exempt from that. So, if it's possible to lose joy, how do you get it back? And you know when you get it back, something, you know what we call that? We call that revival. The Christian life is a series of revivings. Back in 2011, 
I went probably through the lowest time in my whole life. God was dealing with me about my life, and I, I, was, I was just hanging on. Truly, I was. I was pastoring, but I was hanging on. Here, I'm trying to feed and shepherd and encourage people, and I just could, I could just barely get out of bed in the morning. It was a rough three or four months. Lost a lot of weight, couldn't sleep. I, was, I went through depression for the first time. I'd always taken a step back and say, ah, if you're depressed, uh, just pull yourself up by the bootstraps and get over it. We ain't got time for you. But you know what? The Lord really showed me that depression in the life of a Christian is real. Now, some of it can be hormonal. Some of it can be self-inflicted. But nonetheless, it's real. It's real. What brings a Christian out of those dark times? Well, God brought into my life a man by the name of Scotty Smith. Scotty Smith had a daily blog. And the name of the blog was Heavenward by Scotty Smith. And on this day, August the 1st, 2011, he published this. And it was like throwing a life raft to me. Because I was so low, I had to look up to see bottom. I'd lost my joy. It was my fault. Don't get me wrong. It was my fault. But I'd lost it. And here's what he says. He, he quotes Romans 1, 15 through 17, where Paul says, I'm, I'm ready to preach the gospel. I'm eager to preach the gospel. I'm a debtor to preach the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, you know. And then from those verses, he says this. Most gracious Lord Jesus, even as Paul was eager to preach the gospel to believers in Rome, so I am eager to preach it to my own heart today. There was a time when I thought that the gospel was only for non-believers, simply the doorway to begin a relationship with you. But I now realize that we believers need the gospel just as much as non-believers. From beginning to end, our redemption is entirely dependent upon the grace, truth, and power of the gospel. Indeed, there's nothing more than the gospel. There's just more of the gospel. And my point is this. This book is not only going to tell people how to find real joy for the first time, but it's an ongoing study and a blessing and an encouragement to the Christian how to recover that joy once again when we get into those times that are so difficult. When I went, to, went back to Washington Bible College in 1974-ish, had a professor there that, maybe I shared this with you already, but he mentioned uh, first day of class to we students, he says, do you know something that's better than being saved? You've got a group of Christian kids in a school, you're going, okay, that's a trick question, what's the answer? And so we all go, well, let's see, what's better than being saved? Well, getting a new Lexus and a cruise and, you know, all Jesus' blessings, he said, no. Better than, be, get the wording, better than being saved is experiencing it. It's great to give Christmas presents, isn't it, kids? Did you list this long yet? Okay. If you get everything on that list, you rip open the paper and make the house look like a cyclone came through it, and then you take all those gifts and put them in your room on a shelf, close the door, and don't use them, what good are they? The salvation that's granted to us, the salvation of God that He gives to us, 
is enjoyed only when it's experienced, or as he will say in chapter 2 and verse 12, work out your own salvation. You see? So this epistle, and, and quite honestly, I hope that God will bless you and myself to use the thoughts and teachings of this to tell others about Christ, because he's in here all over the place. It's a good evangelistic tool. But once a person becomes a Christian, they don't get away from the gospel. They just get, as Scotty Smith said, more of the gospel. Let me show you a verse of Scripture. Psalm 85. Uh, This is, to me, the psalm of revival in the Old Testament. Because he actually uses that wording. And I want you to see what he defines revival as. Psalm 85. He opens up by saying, Lord, you know why we can ask you for revival again? Because you did it in the past. When you go to God and you need something from Him, what is the confidence that we have that He's going to do it according to His Word? He did it before. And based upon the confidence that He has in God's sovereign, loving work in the past, look at verse 6. Will you not revive us? Look, again. And what is the essence of revival according to that verse? That your people may what? Rejoice in what? You! That's revival. Joying and rejoicing once again in God. Above all things. Not His gifts, but the giver. Not His blessings, but the blesser. See? So we never get beyond the matter of having our joy restored and revived as we walk through this life. You read the lives of those who were burned at the stake and gave their lives for Jesus, and even people today, and you can read about that. What sustains them? What causes an 11-year-old boy being told by the extremists, you denounce Jesus or we're going to kill you? Stand up and say, sorry, I can't do that. And they kill him. Is that just some pie-in-the-sky, feel-good feeling that that 11-year-old boy had? Or was that the reality of the joy that he has found in Jesus Christ that he found nowhere else that would cause him to stand up and say, I will not deny my Savior. So as I said a moment ago, it's a great blessing to have the inspired words of a man that I think, even though I've never been in prison, I've I've had prison ministries, but I've never been a, you know, it's a nice place to visit, I just don't want to stay. Okay. But in our lives, you know, prisons don't always have bars and walls. Do they? You ever been in a prison before? Felt like there was no way to go, you were just confined? Well, we can identify to some degree, we, hopefully more and more, with what he's going to say. Let me show you. Uh, we're going to finish today with communion. I have just a couple of more thoughts and then we'll get into the communion table. But I want to leave this with you to give perspective in regard to the Apostle Paul and what he, he... He was a man who knew real struggles. He really did. One of the authors says he's been kept in prison for two years in Caesarea without trial. He was being held for an unknown amount of time in Caesar's jail in Rome. He survived a perilous storm on the Mediterranean Sea. 
He had been deserted by most of his friends. Others, even Christian leaders, had spoken against him, hoping to get him even in more trouble with the government. And he was possibly facing execution for his faith. Does that sound like a, an exciting, happy, always smiling kind of Christian life? And if you'd like to get a little bit more expanded understanding of what he went through, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 16 down through verse 23. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where he talks about me being persecuted but not forsaken. Okay, This is a guy who really understood struggles. And now he's writing from a prison cell. Believe me, that prison cell didn't have three hots and a cot. And a gym where you could work out. Or a library where you can get your law degree. Let me tell you, been there, done that. Not in prison doing it, but I've been to that prison and I've seen it. This one wasn't a prison where you could subpoena someone and petition for your rights and get another trial. He was confined. Read about prisons in that day. They didn't have indoor plumbing. They didn't have neon lighting. They didn't have one person who had his space of 12 by 12. It was despicable. And yet, here we are, yet, this author goes on to say, no book in the Bible is so filled with joy as Philippians. Man, I don't want to lose that perspective as I go through, and I'll probably mention it several times just to keep bringing us back. He's saying this, oh, really? Oh, yeah, he's in that position and he can say that. And if he could do that, and God is the same, the gospel is the same, his joy is the same, then I can do the same in 2017 in the comfortable West portion of the world. Therefore, he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, toward the end of that chapter, chapter, we don't lose heart. We don't give up. Something that has amazed me in 40-some years of pastoring is the excuses that people leave to abandon the church and the, and the Lord Jesus Christ. We read Psalm 2 this morning where it says that he who sits in the heavens will laugh. <laughs> I wish God had a loudspeaker. And people say, well... We believe God wants... Now, I'm not saying it's never wrong to leave a church. Don't get me wrong. I believe there are times when God leads people away, but God needs to lead them away, okay? But I can just only imagine when they use some of these excuses, God's got a loudspeaker going, <laughs> Really? You're, you're going to abandon your responsibility, your participation, your gifts in the body of Christ because of this? you got to be kidding me. Well, one more thought and then we'll get into the communion table. This is not only a book that's filled with tremendous thoughts on joy and experience of that joy, but it's also got a lot of doctrine. Doctrine that is both profound and practical as well as profitable for us. The book of Philippians, and I'm quoting, is also noteworthy for its great doctrinal statements. It's not intended as a doctrinal treatise like Romans or Galatians, but it has a lot of great doctrine in it. Please don't be afraid of that word doctrine. Doctrine divides. No, it does not. Doctrine unites. 
fleshly misunderstanding of doctrine divides. Okay? So there's a lot of doctrine here. And so consequently, great expressions of Christian truth fall like ripe fruit from his pen. At times, it almost seems to be accidental or incidental. So the entire argument of Romans is found in one verse. Did you know that? Romans chapter three, or Philippians chapter 3 and verse 9. Paul said, I want to be found. How? Not in my own righteousness, but in the righteousness of Christ. That's the essence, as it were, of the book of Romans. The sum of his teaching about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15 is also found in Philippians. Chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. And Christ, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. And perhaps, perhaps, the greatest doctrinal passage about Christ in the entire Bible is found in this book. Philippians chapter 2. Beginning in verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, blah, 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 became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And God has highly... That's a tremendous passage of Scripture about Jesus Christ. So, I invite you to the smorgasbord of Christian truth as we go through this. I wrote this on my own notes just earlier this morning. When I was in high school, a few years ago, some of those guys had daddies who spoiled them and bought them those, you remember those 65 Le Mans? The GTOs? And they would talk to their buddies at lunch or sometimes say, hey man, we're going to go for a joy ride tonight, which means we're going to take the top and put it down and we're going to cruise through the neighborhood. Everybody's going to be drooling because they ain't got one like us. We're going to put the glass packs on it and we're going to really make a scene. We're going for a joy ride. Well, I didn't get my license until I was 19 and couldn't get a car until I could buy it and take care of my own insurance. So I was always drooling, wishing I could do something like that. I invite you with me to go on a joy ride the book of Philippians. I hope that by God's grace, if we end up the last verse together in chapter 4, we can look back and say, wow, what a ride. Look what God has done. Not Not only and not particularly or most importantly in my life, but in us as a body of Christ. Believe me, there's much that can be done if we will read it, pray over it, and put it into practice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we cannot see the future, but we leave every time we enter into a study of the Scriptures, there's exciting and challenging and convicting days ahead. 